Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 and 17 through 21, which is located in your bulletin and in our church Bibles on page 737. Please stand if you are able as we read from the Old Testament. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Please be seated. I remember 32 years ago, I met somebody who was quintessentially American. She had come to study at the college in the UK where I was. It was the 1980s, and the style of fashion on British campuses, I remember at the time, was kind of grunge meets Depeche Mode. The British uh, were wearing the latest in darkest, dowdiest monocolors straight from their local thrift store, or they were sporting bright-colored punk hair in various neon colors. And when she arrived from Washington, D.C., my friend, I think, was wearing a members-only jacket. I remember, although I may be wrong, a fuchsia-colored turtleneck and jeans and L.L. Bean boots. Uh, As I like to say, uh, she was studying abroad, and so was I. (laughs) It's just a little joke in our family. After after a couple of months uh, of being in Britain, she was also wearing a grungy dark green woolen coat and black shoes and top and pants and practicing using the word bloody this and bloody that every moment she could get. Her mother, I remember, was appalled at the transformation when she arrived back at BWI. What had happened to her preppy daughter? And in many ways, my friend did what anyone tends to do in a foreign culture. She adapted. She adapted to look like the people that she was living among. But her assimilation, you'll be glad to know, was not total. She never succumbed to the dark cynicism of the Brits determined to maintain her Yankee can-do optimism, and she made the best brownies any of us had ever tasted. She won us over wholesale. I loved her, and I still do, for her difference. So what is the book of Daniel about? 
and why is it relevant to us some two and a half thousand years after it was written? Well, as you read it, you can see Daniel is primarily about the experience of four young men who were part of a huge number of exiles taken from the city of Jerusalem in the year 605 BC by the Babylonian general Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonians, as it happened, had a habit of doing this. They did it three times to Judea. The first time they came, which was this time, they began by decapitating Judean society. They dethroned the king, Jehoiakim, and then took a chunk of the population with them, 10,000 of the most wealthy, professional, most crafted, and the administrative class away with them. They just sliced them off the top of Judean society and took them with them. And that's why the writer starts here, as you can see here in this first chapter. And among these 10,000 were Daniel and his friends. They took them to Babylon. That's uh, what Jay's uh, musical rendition was for us this morning, recalling the 500-mile trek through the desert to Babylon, where they would be made into something else. So what a relevant time to read this book about life as a minority in a majority culture that may be squeezing us into its mold. Evangelicalism, the evangelical church in this country, my guess is we're about to see this again in this national election, is no longer the silent majority. We are now, to all intents and purposes, the silent minority, about a third of the population according to the latest Barna reports. And a divided population at that. We've enjoyed being top dogs since Jimmy Carter took the presidency in the 1970s, but this is a brave new world. And we are going to have to be brave and smart and sure of what we're about and sure of who it is we are called to be and who we are called to serve within that world. And questions should be asked, shouldn't they? Does the Church of Jesus still have a role in a society where our voting block may no longer carry the day? Did God ever envision that it might come to this in these United States? I think it's going to feel a little bit scary. But it is in just such an environment that God first grew the Church of the New Testament. And in most parts of the world, our brothers and sisters have lived this way for generations. So there's a great deal to be encouraged about. That's why we're studying Daniel. And these are going to be our watchwords as we work our way through it. These are the words from Romans 12, Paul's words. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. So two questions for us as we come to Daniel chapter 1. For us in the 21st century evangelical American church. Our calling is clear. It is to conform to what God wants us to be and to resist being conformed to what the world wants us to be. We are to be non-conformists. So these are the questions. How did Babylon squeeze God's people into their mold and how did God's people resist being squeezed? If you would uh, turn to Daniel chapter 1, we're going to make our way uh, through those two questions. So first of all, how did 
Babylon, the empire of Babylon, squeeze God's people into their mold, into their shape? How did they attempt to do this? Reading this, I can't help but recall uh, episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Remember those aliens that sound like a Swedish experimental boy band, the, the Borg Collective? They always uh, came across uh, the Starship Enterprise, politely introducing themselves in case people didn't know who they were by repeating the phrase, we are the Borg. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. Do you have any other Trekkies? It is so, actually not Swedish, but Babylonian. Because the Babylonians, the Babylonian Empire, had long experience observing the rituals of conquest and the practices of assimilation. And they'd watched the Assyrians before them. The Assyrians decimated societies, whereas the Babylonians assimilated them. The Assyrians scattered, the Babylonians collected. The Assyrians treated their captives like animals, and the Babylonians treated like their captives like guest workers. In fact, last year, I just discovered this, last year at the uh, Bible Lands Museum in Jerusalem, they found these tablets and they displayed them. There are about 100 of these cuneiform tablets from Babylon. They went on display. Uh, this picture, it looks like a fossilized Nutrigrain bar. But what it is, there are about 100 of these in Akkadian script, which was the language of Babylon, the administrative records of Babylon. They recall the life of one Jewish family over four generations, their trade, their daily commerce, the things that they were buying and selling. And what's remarkable is that the picture they give us is of an entire Jewish community living and thriving alongside a canal just outside the city of Babylon. We know a lot about them. We know that they were allowed to thrive and practice business, to farm, to contribute to the ailing Babylonian economy, which may have been part of the reason they were there. They were allowed to keep their customs within limits. In other words, this was foreign, yes. It was exile, yes, but it wasn't barbaric or cruel necessarily. This wasn't forced conformity. It was a kind of gently pressed seduction. And that's what you see here in the story of Daniel and his friends. So Nebuchadnezzar has his military plunder the ranks of the Judean ruling class. And he's looking for promising young recruits for the new Babylonian empire. Notice that word in verse 4, youths. It is no exaggeration. It's likely that Daniel and his friends were between the ages of 12 and 16. Youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, and the qualifications go on. What is this? Well, it's a kind of three-year university course. They would be indoctrinated in Babylonian culture and religion. And the writer has already hinted to us that these men know, knew with whom they were dealing, and they knew who they were. So in verse 2, he uses not the name for Babylon, but the old Genesis name, Shinar, which is where the story from Genesis of where the Tower of Babel had been built and then demolished by God. Although these are exiles, these boys knew whom they were and to whom they belonged. The question is, do we? You know, in this crazy political season, people have been comparing Donald Trump to Nebuchadnezzar. 
I don't know if you've read this. Anne Graham Lotz and David Lane have both compared Donald Trump, and they've said he's our Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, I feel like saying I knew Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a friend of mine. <laughs> Mr. Trump, you'll know Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Apart from the fact that both Donald and Nebuchadnezzar were into real estate, there's probably little similarity beyond that. Nebuchadnezzar was neither a Trump nor a Clinton. He was a Napoleon. He was a master at grand government, balancing leniency and stringency among his conquered vassals. He was one of the great minds of history. But for all of his power and ability, we're told this right off in the text, he had not even managed to conquer the tiny city-state of Judah by himself. Rather, it was the Lord, we read in verse 2, who gave Judah and its king into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And this is the theme of Daniel. In Daniel 4, God will remind Nebuchadnezzar himself that it is, quote, the Most High who rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And I think this is the first lesson of Daniel to us. And I hope it will encourage you in a time for evangelicals, particularly when everything seems to be going backwards or everything seems to be falling apart. You know, the Jews of the first century thought that God had emigrated to Rome. And you hear that sometimes, a kind of commentary about what has God done for us lately. The world that Daniel had grown up with had gone. And there was no going back. There were those who sided in the Israeli society with the Egyptians and those like Jeremiah who sided with the Babylonians. But this book is about who's really in charge. And we need to remember that, don't we, when we start to get worried, perhaps on those days when we play the Christian version of Chicken Little. The encouragement here is not to place our faith in the Tweedledum and Tweedledee of party politics, because we've been assured that human politics, laws and personalities, although they play their part, are not ultimately driving this ship. That's the message of this book. Jesus was woken up in the storm on Galilee, you remember, by the disciples who were scared witless by the wind and the waves. And Jesus, and you can imagine this in a political season, silencing the storm and saying to them, as he says to us, where is your faith? Where is our faith? When we're freaking out about the sky falling, just who do we think is in charge? The second lesson here for us, I think, is more subtle Remember Martin Luther, who we have uh, lauded already this morning, wrote a paper in 1520 entitled The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, in which he argued against the abuse of the sacraments by the church in Rome and the seduction of the church in general. And the question is, why the Babylonian captivity? Why not the Assyrian or the Egyptian captivity? Well, it's because Luther knew this, because the tactics of Babylon were of a soft, unnoticed assimilation, a kind of seduction. Come and be one of us. You'll have a far better life than you had in Judea. Before long, you'll forget Yahweh. You'll have the best that we can offer. Look what we will do for your children. We'll put them through the best training programs. They'll have a very comfortable life. I wonder if that isn't us also. Daily, we are seduced by our own Babylonian captivity, aren't we? By our own affluence, by our own worldliness. Doesn't the church also share the values of our culture? Haven't we become individualists 
and consumerists? Isn't our abiding interest, like the unbelieving world around us, in protecting ourselves and putting our interests first? It's worth asking, haven't we already been squeezed into the world's mold? There are things that Jesus said that are particularly disturbing. One of, them, one of the things he said always strikes me, it jars me. These are the seven woes in Luke's gospel. And he tells his church, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate you. Is that us? You know, maybe we have some money, but do we live with a simple lifestyle? Is our aspiration really to stand out for Christ or to be popular? Do evangelicals see those conditions as blessings or curses? Well, if not, maybe we need to learn from this book Perhaps first that God must work in us before he starts to change the world that we live in. So I think these are hugely important questions about how the world tends to squeeze us into its mold. And secondly, in these next verses, eight onwards, how did God's people then resist being squeezed into that mold? Democracy, as Lyndon Johnson was fond of reminding people, doesn't always yield particularly clear results. He used to tell a joke about a preacher. He had a ton of these preacher jokes uh, about a preacher who was becoming distracted by a man who uh, came to church every Sunday and slept through the entire sermon. Not that that would ever happen here. And one Sunday, the preacher decided to do something about it. As he began to preach, the man, true to form, fell fast asleep. And uh, the preacher said quietly, everyone who wants to go to heaven, stand up. And everybody stood up and uh, then they sat down again. And uh, uh, the sleeping man did not. And when they'd sat down, the preacher shouted at the top of his voice, Everyone who wants to go to hell, stand up! And the dozed man apparently stood up, uh, wide awake, startled to see what was uh, going on. And he said to the preacher, I don't know what we're voting on, but it looks like you and I are the only ones in favor of it. (laughs) So this is one of the lessons of... Daniel. The most important question is not what the world is doing and what the world knows to do, but whether the church knows what it's doing, whether the church knows what to do. So we read this of Daniel, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Resolve is one of those verbs in English that when it's used, you know that someone has reached a watershed. They've come to a point where they've decided to change. There's a Rubicon that's been crossed. In the original language, this is just a fragment of a phrase in Hebrew, Daniel, we're told, in the heart of him, resolved that he would do these things, that he would live in a new way, that he would have a new horizon. Paul writes something similar in Corinthians. Each one, he says, and he happens to be talking about money, but it's broader than that. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So I take this to be the root of all spiritual and political action for those who are marked by the gospel. It's that we know who we are and that we know upon whom we depend. 
Back to Luther. He resisted conformity. We know this from the story of the Diet of Worms in 1521. He was asked to recant what he had taught, but instead he resisted. I consider, he said, I consider myself, he said, convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand, I can do no other. So, in this season, as with every day, surely, of the lives that God has given us, what is your life going to be about? What have you resolved to do and to be? What sacrifices are you going to make in the light of that? You see, without that conviction, you and I are rudderless ships. We are those that James spoke about that are blown to and fro by one political storm or another event of crisis on CNN. But with it, there is a grain to you. There is a direction to you. There is something of faith that God can sharpen. And we read that while Luther's diet may have been worms, Daniel and his friends determined theirs will be vegetables. This is the part we didn't read, verses 8 through 13. And the question has always been for commentators, why make this their nonconformity? Why this particular tiny thing becomes their resistance? Well, several theories have been offered. Some have suggested that the food was offered to uh, Babylonian gods, and so Daniel and his friends resist eating it as a small way of retaining who they are. The problem with that interpretation is that it's a New Testament problem, not an Old Testament one. There is nothing in Babylon that could have been guaranteed not to have been offered to idols. Nothing that they received, not even vegetables. So the second theory is that the meat that they had offered would have been, if they'd taken it, because it had to do with the dietary restrictions of the Levitical food laws, it would have been to break that, because no distinction in Babylon was made between clean and unclean meat. It wasn't kosher. Well, that makes sense for the meat, except they also refused the king's wine, against which there was no prohibition in the law. The clue, actually, is very interesting. The clue to unraveling this mystery comes later in Daniel 10 and 11. Daniel 10, verse 3, there Daniel says, he will eat no delicacies, he will eat no rich food or fine wine from the king's table. He will accept no gratuity, no gift, no political favor, because to do so would be to seek Nebuchadnezzar's favor, to put himself in covenant with the king of Babylon and to put him under his counsel. In that culture, to sit down with someone and accept their food was to accept a kind of covenant relationship with them. So this is the line. It's amazing, isn't it? For, for boys who were probably 14 or so, this is the line that they say they will not cross because they already have a God and a king. That was Daniel's resolve. And after 10 days, the four looked, verse 15, don't you love this? Better in appearance and fatter in flesh. I love that than all the youths who ate the king's food. What are we to learn from this? Well, in closing, let me suggest to you there's a principle for us in this and a challenge to us. Despite the fact that every Jewish parent and every other parent ever since has no doubt taught, used this story to tell their kids, listen, kids, if you eat your vegetables, great things will happen. Right? That's actually not the point of the story. Rather, this is how Daniel and his friends resist being 
conform. This is the principle. They made their survival contingent on the supernatural provision of God. They made their survival contingent on the supernatural provision of God. It would be like you and me looking at all the things that money does for us, money which is really the security and the significance of our culture, and we would say to our money, you know, money, you are not those things to me. Ultimately, although useful, you are not my security. You're not my significance. So I'm going to give a portion of what God has given me first back to him because I'm saying by that to myself and to others, I trust him. Secondly, I think you can do that with your children. As Michael and I were talking after the first service, he was reflecting, and I think he's right, when we send our kids off to Babylonian environments for four years, really, what are we doing? It's not that college is bad, but we need to think about what we're doing. Are we buying into the idolatry that is oriented around a success culture and saying, this is the way our children will be happy. This is the way our children will be secure. And we should pray, shouldn't we, earnestly for them in that foreign environment. And I think you can do this also in small ways. I used to wear a tiny lapel cross, as some of you do, and I found that it provoked extreme reactions for something so small. It's because it was a kind of testimony. And I think you can do this too with our country, perhaps in the ways that you participate in community politics or local government or with local business. You know, when you're standing up, perhaps at a town hall meeting, instead of saying, this is what I think, have you ever thought about quoting scripture or asking people, do you know what would Jesus say that we should do in this situation? I was very convicted by David Badiah and the other American Olympians who stood up and the first thing they said when they'd won their medals before the sportscasters was, we are here because of Christ. But this is the pattern. Daniel and his friends made their survival contingent on the supernatural provision of God. And what happened? Verse 9, God gave Daniel favor. Verse 17, God gave them learning and skill. It was God who in the end supplied what the world could fail to deliver. And here's the question, the challenge. As the darkness gathers, as it no doubt is doing for who knows how long across the Western world, how can you and I have any confidence that God will look after us after the election has come and gone? Whoever wins, how can we know that God will look after us? How do we know that God won't be thwarted somehow by the outcome of the election? Or that he won't be plain outmaneuvered by the Supreme Court of the United States? Well, we have this assurance, don't we? God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. That is our confidence. That is what is going to happen. In the end, we have absolutely no doubt of who is at work and as who is achieving his purposes and by what means. And who is that man? Well, he is the man. Isn't this telling? He is the man that God has provided for you and me. He was marred, Isaiah says. Not the kind of attractive young person that people admire, nor that Nebuchadnezzar was looking for, but the kind that people turn their faces from in disgust, Isaiah says. And his wisdom wasn't applauded in the court of public opinion any more than yours may be if you offer the words of Jesus to others. It was rejected. 
And he wasn't judged competent to stand in the king's palace, but was condemned by the Romans, as you and I may be condemned, who knows, by our own society when we stand up for Christ. And all of this, by Jesus, for your sakes and for your crimes, that one day you may be presented by him to his father in his cause. It's a remarkable parallel. That is the gospel, that the government is now upon his shoulders and yours and my rising and falling and even the fate of nations depends not on some secular event but on what those nations and on what we do with him and with his words. So, although this book is called Daniel, that's who this book is ultimately about. He is its hero and the one to whom we are told to conform and entrust ourselves. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for all the ways that you have provided for us and gone ahead of us, that you are our significance in Jesus and that you are our security. And it is he that holds the banner of the church. It is he who will one day be lauded as every knee bows before him. It is he who is accomplishing his purposes, even through weak vessels like us. It is he who in even alien environments will make his name glorious and make the world stand back and wonder. Lord, we thank you that you are at work. We thank you that you are at charge. We thank you that we are in your care. In Christ's name, amen.